Church, what a joy we have to gather and to worship. Exodus chapter 2, for those that are worshiping from home, we invite you also to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Specifically, we're going to be starting in verse 11. Exodus 2, starting in verse 11. If you've lived long enough, you know what I mean when I ask the question, are there any, is there anybody here that has a, a chapter in your life that you wish that you could go back and, and change some of the details of? Any, anybody here have a, a paragraph in your life that you wish you could sort of do it over, or, or maybe even a, a sentence in your life that you wish that you could get a rewrite? The, the American singer-songwriter Paul Simon, he has a song that he, he, he wrote a few years back that was called Rewrite. Just listen to the lyrics. I'm working on a rewrite, that's right, going to change the ending, throw away the title, and toss it in the trash. I think a lot of us could relate that, that there, there are certain parts of our life that we wish and we long that we could go back and, and rewrite, rewrite the, the, the nature of, of the chapter that oftentimes is, is pinned with the ink of foolishness or sin. So, sometimes the chapters that we wish we could rewrite, we, we don't necessarily cause, but they're, they're the product of trials. They're the product of tribulations. And they're it's just sort of this common belief in all of our lives here that we share parts of our life that we wish we could just go back and have a do-over. If that's you, if any of you here have parts of your life that you wish you could rewrite, guess what? You're in good company. Guess what? You're in biblical company. You don't have to go but just a few pages in God's Word to find sort of the hall of faith. You, you have Noah coming out of the ark, being protected by God's saving grace as, as he and his family have just come out of the ark. And the way he celebrates is by sort of this drunken night that has implications for his family that, that ultimately will last for generation after generation. It was a rewritable chapter. Abraham is, is called by God to, to leave the, the land that he knows that is so familiar to him. And, and he doesn't get a, a chapter into the story before there's a famine in the land that heads him down to Egypt. And he literally uh, throws his wife under the bus. And says, I don't know her. She's not my wife. See, lies a rewritable Moses in Exodus chapter 2 gives us a, an example of, of his rewritable chapter starting in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. He looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike down your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Exodus chapter 2 is our introduction to Moses. In verses 1 through 10, we left Moses as an as infant child. 
maybe a toddler who has been weaned from the, the nursing of his mother and given as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. And so we've left Moses, and now we fast forward according to Acts chapter 7. We have a sermon by Stephen that, that recounts sort of the highlights of the Old Testament. And Stephen informs us in Acts chapter 7 that verse 11, chapter 2 of Exodus, is Moses at 40 years old. So we have none of his teenage years. We have his, sort of none of the, the young adult trying to find his way in a career. No, we fast forward him to 40 years old, and we have this. The first portrait of him as an adult is this rewritable chapter. Notice in this passage here, we discover in verse 11 that he went out to his people. So he leaves the poshness of the palace. He leaves the, the, the cultivation that he had of convenience all around him as an Egyptian prince, and he goes into the hurt and the agony of his people, and he remembers where he has come from. He never lost sight of his origin as, as, as a Hebrew himself. The verse, uh, in verse 11, we have this word, looked. And it's sort of a missable word in the English translation. But yar in the uh, Hebrew language is, is a word that means to look with deep emotion, to empathize. Not a passing glance, but he actually looks and he sees with this deep emotion. And you can imagine the motivations that are going to lead him to his next action. Maybe all of the survivor's guilt of, of all of his people, all of his kinsmen that are living under the heavy bondage of Pharaoh and hearing the sounds day in and day out of the overlords beating on the backs of the Hebrew slaves. And he snaps. He's had enough. He goes out, again, look at the text here in verse 12. It isn't this rash decision that he makes. Actually, he tries to cover it up. Again, look in verse 12. He looked this way and he looked that way. He's making sure in this moment, again, the text tells us, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. So there's a premeditation to this sort of homicidal act that, that Moses does in this moment here. And then what does he do? Even more sinister than that, he takes the body of the Egyptian overlord and he dumps sand on it. He covers over his act, thinking, well, surely I've gotten away with this. Surely no one would know my action. And then the next scene that we have is the scene of, of two Hebrew slaves fighting, quarreling among themselves. Moses sees, Moses intervenes, and then one of them, the one who says, why did you start this? He says, hey, look, who made you the judge? What, what right do you have to interfere, interfere in, in what we are doing right here? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And all of a sudden, he realizes that what he thought no one knew, everyone knows. 
Now, what do we make of this account? It's an interesting account, especially when you're looking at the rest of the Bible. And even if you're looking at the rest of church history, there's, there, there's 2,000 years worth of Christian interpretation of this action right here. And, and there's some interpreters that say, look at the courageous act of Moses. Now, why would they say that? Well, the New Testament, it shows us the courage of Moses to not just sit in the palace and say, hey, I'm sorry that they can't fend for themselves. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy the royalty and, and the cushionness of, of the palace here. No, he is led to action. The injustice draws him to activity. Hebrews in chapter 11, in that great hall of faith, verses 24 through 26, the anonymous writer of Hebrews sort of hints at this when he says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we can see how the writer of Hebrews sees this act and says that, that Moses in this moment could have sat there and ignored the cries of his people. He could have acted like everything was okay, but it wasn't okay. And when there's injustice, it takes courage to step out and intervene. But what we see with Moses is, is his intervention was a sinful intervention. There's one thing to have the courage to stand up. There's one thing to have the courage to say this is wrong. But Moses' reaction to the wrong is a wrong in itself. It's premeditated murder. And we see that in the way that he's looking to this side, he's looking to that side, and then he covers over his act, hoping that no one would notice. We might want to pause there. We might want to pause there because there's something about that, that bucket of sand that I think that speaks of a principle a principle that I think intersects all of our lives to, to varying degrees. And maybe you're not there, but maybe one day you will be there. But there is the illusion of hidden sin where Satan whispers in our ears, hey, this will be our secret. You can do this. You can act upon your impulses. You can, you can do what you want to do, and nobody will know. Do you, do you know that we often, we often reap in public what we sow in private? It's just a truth. We, we see this with Moses. Moses covers over his sin, but somehow, the text doesn't tell us, but somehow what he thought no one saw, not only does the palace know about it, but the no-name Hebrew slaves know about it. So it's become public. And there's a, there's a sense in which we need to learn from this lesson here because we are tempted to believe the lie that we can cover up the tracks of our sin. We, we believe the lie that we can, we can cover up our private sin with the sand of our image, the sand of our work ethic, the sand of the veneer of the quote-unquote perfect family. And what are we doing? We're shoveling at times sand on the secret parts of our heart, hoping no one will know. But here's a truth. Here's a truth. That we sin under the omniscient gaze of a holy God. 
So those things that we're covering up, they're the very reason that Jesus came. Do you know that? That that Jesus loves you so much that he knows what you're shoveling sand over and he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for those secret places, those recesses of your soul. Do you know that? But do you also know that God, for all of us who are his children, he loves us as a father loves us. He loves us enough to where when we're, when we're covering over those places in our life, he often allows what is in secret to become public. Why? To draw us back to him. To allow us to feel the consequences, no doubt, of sin, but the consequences of sin are being able to drive us back into his embrace and into his kindness. Where we see, we see in a way that we cannot have imagined the, the glory of the cross of Christ Jesus, that while we are sinners and our sin is more, his mercy, his mercy is more. Our sins there are many, his mercy is more. And so maybe you're here, maybe you're here today, and there are parts of your life that you're saying, hey, I can hide this from, and you just fill in the blank. I can hide this from coworkers. I can hide this from family members. I can hide this from church friends. And nobody's going to know. Allow the story of Moses to remind us all that there is not enough sand in this universe to cover up an unforgiving heart. There is not enough sand in this universe to cover up bitterness in your heart. There is not enough sin in the universe to cover up the very things that ultimately Jesus died for and God in his loving kindness as our Father oftentimes exposes to draw us to our knees back into repentance into his arms. Do you know the illusion of hidden sand? Do you know the illusion of hidden sand? Do you know the grace of God? Now, what do you do when you're here and there are parts of your life that you say, hey, no one knows about this. What do we do with those things? How do we uncover those things? Hey, let me tell you another story of somebody that had some rewritable chapters in his life. And his name is not Moses. His name is not Abraham. His name is not Noah, but his name is David. A man after God's own heart had some rewritable chapters in his life. And so when he has some sin in his life, the sin of an adulterous rendezvous with Bathsheba that produces a child, and all of that that he sows in private becomes publicly revealed, what does he do? He says, I'm going to dump some sand on it. We'll kill her husband after we call him back from the front lines of the fight. And it'll all be good. When Nathan the prophet reveals through God his sin, and he is broken by his sin, and we read in Psalm 32, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When I was piling sand upon sand upon these secret parts, I was groaning all day long. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
What a wonderful passage. What, what, a, what a powerful passage for us to be reminded of, that when we go to the Lord with those secret parts of our life, he receives us. I love 1 John 1, 9. I think I quote that passage more than any other passage that I quote in my, in my sermons, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what part of your life are you covering over? Will you bring that to the Lord because he already knows about it? Would you allow him to restore you to a right relationship with him? Would you repent of that? Would you seek accountability? And would you walk in the newness of his grace upon your life? Now notice that Moses, he flees. It's almost, it's almost like Pharaoh, he, he puts up all of these most wanted signs all across the proverbial post offices of all of Egypt saying, the guy that used to be in my palace, the very adopted grandson, I need him. I'm going to kill him. Now, why? why? Why does he need to silence Moses? I mean, it's a good question. Why does Moses flee to Midian? And the answer is, is that Moses has shown his cards. And the last thing that Pharaoh can have is, is an imposter in his palace. The last thing that he can have is a, is a Hebrew person who has been living under the prestige and the comfort of the palace to have and lead an uprising of the slaves. An insurrection of, of Pharaoh, he says, I will not have it. I've got to squash this threat. Moses knows it. And what does Moses do? He flees into the wilderness of Midian. He, as a royal prince, is sitting by a well. He is out in the middle of nowhere in this nomadic tribe. And then we read in verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian has seven daughters. And they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses, he stood up. And he saved them. Notice again the courage of Moses here. He doesn't just sit by. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a wait and watch kind of guy here. He sees the danger. He intervenes. He saves them. He waters their flock. And they come back to their father, Ruel. And he said, how is it that you came home so soon today? And they said, well, there's this Egyptian who was sitting at the well. And he delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And so the dad said to the daughters, well, why didn't you invite him home here? Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him and let's have a little bit of hospitality and may he eat bread. Moses was content, verse 21, 21, 22, really fast forwards things really quickly here. Moses was content to dwell with the man, Ruel, along with his family. And that man gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. Why? Moses said this, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses' actions have real consequences. He is alienated from Pharaoh and the palace. He is alienated from his own people. Our, our, de, our decisions that we make while they're forgiven by God, there's no doubt, they do have consequences. And one of the consequences is Moses goes into alienation. He goes into exile for 40 years. Now, how do we know that? Again, Stephen is preaching a sermon in Acts chapter 7, and he gives us four decades. So this isn't a little excursion for Moses. For 40 years, he is going to be in the wilderness, and he's going to be working for his father-in-law. Now, a little bit of biblical insight here. It can be kind of confusing when you're walking through the book of Exodus, especially when Ruel pops up, and you're like, who is Ruel? I thought, I thought... 
Moses had a father-in-law, and his name was Jethro, and who is Ruel? I knew he was married to Zipporah, and again, it's helpful for us to know Ruel, Jethro, same people. Ruel means a friend of God. Jethro was a title. It actually could be translated his excellency. So all of us know that when we address our father-in-law, we usually say, your excellency. And so it was the truth here with Moses too. No, it was a title. So Jethro's a title, Ruel's a name there. And so same person, now we're on the same page. Now it's interesting in this passage here, because one of the things that we discover is, is here is Moses in the wilderness. Here is Moses. He is as far away from the royalty of the palace as he possibly can be. Uh, Midian is really a, a nomadic place here where people are coming and going. He is in, he's in the sticks. He's in the country. He is really, really far from the palace. He has gone from the height of what he could have in that ancient Near Eastern world to tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Boy, this, this is a riches to rags story here before us. And I think there's a temptation for us to, to look at Moses' story, and if we didn't know that, hey, there are a lot more chapters after this, we're only in chapter two, we might think to ourselves, boy, that was a sad story. That was a great illustration of how to lose everything that really matters to you. But what we know is, is that God is going to use this wilderness wandering of Moses's life to prepare him to be called by him in Exodus chapter three through a burning bush to go back after 40 years of being away to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So God uses the wilderness to strip Moses. God uses the wilderness to break Moses. Moses has got a lot of privilege that's got to be weeded out of him. He's got a lot of pride. He is not really in touch with the common person. And so Moses has to hurt. He has got to suffer. And God is not going to waste the wilderness wanderings of Moses. And that is helpful for us to know. You're not going to probably ever spend a whole lot of time in Midian, but we all, as followers of God, will spend some time in the wilderness. And what you need to be reminded of is, is that sometimes God allows us to travel through the wilderness to prepare us for the next chapter of our lives. Do you hear me clearly that God never wastes our wilderness wanderings? That God oftentimes uses the wilderness, the decisions that we made, the trials that we're going through, the tragedy that's upon us, and he uses it to shape us. He uses it to mold us. He uses it in Moses' life to strip him of the, of the, of the, of the trappings of the palace to ultimately break him to the place where he can meet Moses in the desert, in the burning bush. So it is for you. God never wastes our wilderness wanderings. Chuck Colson in 1974 was a special counsel to Richard Nixon. He was in one of the most powerful positions in the administration. You know the story of Watergate. He was implicated in that as Nixon's henchman. And so he goes from the White House to a federal prison in no other place but Montgomery, Alabama. 
And it is there where Nixon, where, where Chuck Colson goes from the height of his position right at the right hand of President Nixon to a place where nobody even knows who he is. Someone gave him a C.S. Lewis Mere Christianity book. It's in that moment in the prison that he turns his life over to God and becomes a Christian. And it's at the lowest point of his life, there behind bars, where there is a vision for the next chapter of his life and of his life's work that would be called prison fellowship. And thousands upon thousands of men and women who have been behind bars have found freedom in Christ through the ministry of prison fellowship in all 50 states and across many countries, birthed in the wilderness of Colson's worst moment. God doesn't waste. He doesn't waste our wilderness. A little closer to home, 1935 in Lynette, Alabama, there's a man by the name of Millard Fuller. He was born Little Fuller goes to Auburn, graduates in 57, goes to Tuscaloosa and graduates from Alabama Law School in 1960. By the age of 29, in Montgomery, Alabama, Millard Fuller is a self-made millionaire in 1960. That goes a long way. I mean, the epitome of the successful arrival of living the American dream. He had everything the world could promise him. But he realizes in that moment that it's not enough. He's on the verge of losing his health. He's on the verge of losing his family. And he comes to this fork in the road and he leaves Montgomery. He takes his family with him and they, they settle in a place called America's Georgia, Queen Nia Farms, where Clarence Jordan creates this interracial Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4 community, this, this embodying the gospel and the principles of the gospel in this very countercultural way. And it's there where Millard Fuller leaves behind all of his success. He's in the midst of one of the lowest points of his life, but it is there where a vision is birthed. It is there in his wilderness and in his pain and in his difficulty where there's a vision called Habitat for Humanity that is born. And out of that vision, 29 million people through this Christian organization have had homes rehabbed, renovated, built in the name of Christ as a platform to share the gospel. This ministry has, has spanned 70 countries out of the wilderness wanderings of one of God's children. He doesn't waste our wilderness wanderings. It is oftentimes in the places of our deepest pain, our deepest trial, our deepest tragedy, our, our, our tears that we can't stop in the midst of the uncertainty. It's in, it's in those moments. So, so often God births a heart for the next chapter of our life. And it's in this moment that we need to be reminded when we're in the midst of the wilderness that Satan desires to lie to us. He desires to whisper in our ears that you are here and you are forgotten. You are here and it's hopeless. You are here and it, my friend, is the last chapter. That's what Satan whispers. 
But we need to be reminded that God uses the wilderness in Moses' life to strip him of ease and privilege in the, from the palace and to prepare him for the calling before him. He was not forgotten while he was tending the flock in the wilderness. God had other plans for him. We've got the rest of Exodus to flesh that out. And you need to be reminded. You need to be reminded that your mistakes, my mistakes, our mistakes do not define us in God's eyes. That the worst chapters of our life the worst paragraphs of our life, the sentences that we wish we could go back and rewrite, as painful as they are, as regrettable as they are, they never can find us to a place where God's love doesn't extend to our hurt and our plan or our pain. And there's always a plan for that next chapter that God has before us. You think you're in the last chapter. Maybe you're in the wilderness and God is shaping you and molding you to receive his grace, to receive his mercy, to experience his love in a way that you would never experience unless you traveled through the wilderness. And it's in that moment that you will feel his embrace in a way that you could never experience before. And that, that's where my sermon ends. Ends right there. But I mean, it just doesn't, though, does it? Because I'm just sitting here and I'm just looking at all of us that are here. And for the last 10 months, the last 11 months, for some of you that are here, there's been this tremendous equalizer in our world. And, and there's, so, there's so many in the sanctuary that have experienced the last 10 uh, months, and, and maybe it's been an inconvenience for you, but there's some of you that have really gone through the grinder of pain, the grinder of agony, and there's real hurt, there's real tears. You've lost loved ones in the midst of, 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 of COVID and other sickness that has occurred, and there are others of you that are here, and, and your best laid plans in these last 10 months, they have been derailed. And you like to have things before you, and you're a planner, and you're a person who's the master of your soul. You, you drive the vehicle of your life, and it didn't matter what you thought about uh, whether or not we were going to cancel things in your workplace, whether the country was going to uh, pull back from things. Those things were out of your control. And in that moment, you, you were experiencing this disorientation, this unsettling experience. And for so many people, God is using these last 10 months as a wilderness to strip us, to break us, to mold us, to draw us to our knees. There's so many of us who have put our hope in things that we have realized are so fleeting. And so here we are in the wilderness. And my question to you is, hey, God never waste our wilderness wanderings. But are you going to? Are you going to waste your wilderness? Are you going to try to ignore what he 
is teaching you in this moment? Are you going to try to run away from his love for you in this moment? Are you going to try to ignore what he's doing in this moment to strip you to that place where you know his love and his grace and his compassion for you in a way that you never can? Are you here this morning hearing he will not waste your wilderness? But my question is, will you? Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning knowing that you are God who breaks every power of sin in our lives when we turn to you, that you are God who loves us, who loves us in in the midst of knowing omnisciently what we try to hide and cover with the, the sand of our strivings. You know what's buried in our lives. You, you know it and you love us. You know it and you sent your son to cover it, not with the sand of what our strivings, but, but the blood of Christ. So our sins, we know they are many, but we praise you, God, because your mercy is more. As we walk through the wilderness, and for so many people, the wilderness has not been the last 10 months, but for many others, it has been. For many of us, we, we, we are coming out of a wilderness. There's some of us that are headed to a wilderness. But we need to be reminded that, that you, God, never waste those wilderness wanderings. And so what will we learn? What will we change? What will we do as you desire to lead us to the next chapter of the story that you desire to write and the story of our life? 